Hi guys, welcome back to the Trust Your Gut podcast. This is Erica Smith and Nicole Carter bringing you all of the information that we are learning every single day in our journeys in personal health with our guts and also with our clients in gut health. So we've got a great episode for you today. Please listen in and share this episode with someone else you think might benefit from a little gut health love. Welcome back everyone. Today, I have a dream come true. I started this podcast with Nicole a little over a year ago with no major goals, but definite dreams of interviewing men, women, entrepreneurs, biohackers, doctors, and healers that are making a difference in this world by addressing root causes of disease with major focus on the gut microbiome as the basis of health in our society. To this effect, I feel Nicole and I have delivered. We have had some amazing guests like Trevor that cured his Crohn's through healing his gut with use of kefir and grounding. Perpetual Health Co, who is now creating a retreat where he will educate and cook food with focus on gut health. We've even had Dr. Christine Bashar, who wrote one of the first studies on gut microbiome health, specifically bifidobacterium, and it's linked to reduce COVID-19 hospitalizations and death, among so many others. Today's guest is no exception to this rule. Dr. Stephen Gundry, one of the pioneers of lectin-free living, is joining us today, and I am beyond grateful for this opportunity. I started my own personal journey, lectin-free, over four years ago, and continually reap benefits from this lifestyle. I first heard Dr. Gendry on a podcast, and I could not believe my ears. There it was, this cardiologist saying that diabetes, high blood pressure, rheumatoid arthritis could all be treated at the root cause and be reversed, even cured. And that was it for me. I was hooked, and I needed to learn it all. I had lost every single grandparent by my mid-20s and saw most of them struggle with their health for the last years of their lives. Cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, liver cirrhosis, emphysema, addiction, rheumatoid arthritis, depression, being overweight, and obesity are some but not all of the afflictions that members in my family, including myself, suffer or have suffered from in my case. And now knowing the truth and experiencing the healing, it has become my sole mission to spread the word, teach and coach as many people as possible to give others the opportunity to get their health back. Thank you for joining us again at the Trust Your Gut podcast. We have an exciting show today for you. I'm gonna let Erica uh, do the honors today. Thank you, Erica. All right, guys. Yes, welcome back, welcome back. Today we have an amazing guest. Dr. Stephen Gundry is one of the pioneers of Lectin Free Living, and he is joining us today, and I'm beyond grateful for this opportunity. I started my lectin-free journey over four years ago and continually reap the benefits from this lifestyle. Um, I could not believe my ears when I heard Dr. Gundry on a podcast a few years back. Uh, he was a, saying diabetes, high blood pressure, rheumatoid arthritis could all be treated at the root cause, reversed and even cured. I personally had lost every single grandparent by my mid-20s and saw most of them struggle with their health for the last years of their life. Cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, liver cirrhosis, emphysema, addiction, rheumatoid arthritis, depression, being overweight and obese are some, but not all of the afflictions that the members in my family, including myself, not anymore, (laughs) but we have all suffered those. And now knowing the truth and experiencing healing, it's become my sole mission to just spread the word. So without further ado, here is Dr. Stephen Gundry, a a cardiothoracic surgeon who has published 300 articles, registered several patents for medical devices, is the author of eight books, 
has successfully treated tens of thousands of patients that are suffering for autoimmune disorders, diabetes, leaky gut syndrome, heart disease, and neurodegenerative diseases with protocols that detox cells, repairs the gut, and nourishes the body. Dr. Gundry, welcome to the Trust Your Gut podcast. Erica, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Wow, I don't don't deserve any of that praise, but I'll take it. What the heck? <laughs> it's taking you some years to get here, and I am certainly uh, very, very happy that you've put in all of the work because you've helped so many people, and I'm sure that your work will continue to help more people in the future. So Perfect. your most recent book is titled Unlocking the Keto Code. Yep. It's yet another mind bender. Yes. I mean, first you took the lid off eating plants. And now you're taking the lid off eating fats. I mean, with you, it's always been more about what kind, when, and how you prepare foods that provides the best health outcome. And this keto thing has been no exception. It's amazing. Well, thanks. Now, thanks. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's designed to stimulate the thought process. So uh, <laughs> it looks like it did in you as well. So that's good. Yeah. So the keto diet is very popular nowadays for weight loss. But can you tell us how or why we even discovered the keto diet? Well, you know, the keto ketosis was discovered in Germany in the late 1800s, but it really didn't come to fore until the late 1920s, early 1930s, when it was noted that uh, kids with uh, severe seizure disorders, children, um, they would often have so many seizures that they really didn't wake up and eat and they were starving. And people noticed that when these kids were starving, their seizures would really dramatically abate. But then they'd wake up and they'd start eating and the seizures would start. So uh, some smart folks at Boston and the Mayo Clinic said, hey, you know, I think these kids, when they're starving, are in ketosis, and there's something magical that ketones are doing to keep these kids not having seizures. And they didn't really know what that magic was, uh, but they noted that the other way to produce ketosis is to eat a very high fat diet. And so the original ketogenic diet, and the term was coined at the Mayo Clinic, was an 80% fat diet, 10% uh, carbohydrate, and 10% protein. And it was actually very effective um, for controlling childhood seizures. And it was really what was used in, until the drugs that we use today, like dilantin and phenobarb, came along, and then it pretty much fell by the wayside. Um, we'll talk about this in a minute, but in the 1990s, these drugs, while you know great, still had a lot of side effects. And uh, these kids, um, for lack of a better word, weren't as mentally bright as maybe they would be without these drugs. And so there was a there was a movement to see if they could make the ketogenic diet number one more palatable to children. Uh, any of us who have had children and now grandchildren know it's nearly impossible to deprive a child of carbohydrates. Yeah. Uh, near, in, in fact, it's nearly impossible to deprive anybody of carbohydrates, which is one of the reasons I wrote this book. So they found that if they use 
MCT oil, medium chain triglycerides, that they could actually dramatically lower the amount of fat in these kids' diet, and they could dramatically increase the carbohydrates and the protein that these kids could eat, and they'd still maintain seizure control. And so there was a, a real little flurry of interest in the 90s uh, about this. And in fact, I read that literature and I said, you know, this is, this is interesting. So when I, when I did my ketogenic diet version in my books, uh, I based it on MCT oil. And, and anybody who actually looks at my ketogenic diet before this book notice that boy you know dr gundry's allowing a lot of carbohydrates what, what the, what's the deal with that well it was because of the of the power of these of mct and and that's a good segue so normally when we're starving uh we start sending out what are called free fatty acids out of our fat cells and most of our body most of our mitochondria can run on free fatty acids. They love it as a fuel. The problem with free fatty acids is that they're too big to get into the brain. And so the brain doesn't have any glucose, doesn't have any free fatty acids, and that's kind of the end of the road. Well, luckily, free fatty acids go to the liver where they're converted to ketones. And ketones are these short chain fatty acids that are water soluble and they can pass through the blood brain barrier. So they can keep the brain alive and working kind of during an emergency, if you will. So MCTs, MCTs are different than any other fat. They're absorbed directly through the wall of our gut, all other fats, have to be carried by basically moving vans to go through the wall of the gut. MCTs don't need that. And they go right through the wall of the gut directly into the liver. And lo and behold, once they reach the liver, they're instantaneously converted into ketones. So the, the beauty that these researchers in seizure disorders found was what the heck, you know, the kid could have, you know, a whole pile of fruit or have a stack of pancakes. But if you gave them some MCT oil, which is flavorless and, and tasteless, they'd be in ketosis, even though they ate this gob of carbohydrates. And I said, wow, uh, that's pretty cool. Um, and that got me, you know, really wondering about well, what exactly are, are ketones doing that are, you know, are so miraculous and they're not a super fuel, but I'll stop there. Yeah. So with that, the biggest concept basically that you came to figure out was regarding, you know, in ketosis was something that you call, or it's called mitochondrial uncoupling, which is the, the thing, the buzzword in your book, pretty uh, new for the rest of us. And in the book, you, you do an amazing job explaining all these hard science stuff. I love how you do that. You know, guys, if you haven't read it, it's the, he turns the mitochondria into a club. And I mean, there's, it's just really fun. It makes yeah, it that was really, well done. Yeah. Yeah. Love well done. Well, done. thank so you. Yeah. Can you explain what is mitochondrial uncoupling and how do we benefit from it? 
We don't have seizures. How do we benefit from this? Yeah. So um, I wish I had a better word for mitochondrial uncoupling than mitochondrial uncoupling. But, <laughs> and I spent literally six months while I was writing the book saying, I got to have a better word for this. And my editor said, we got to do something. We got to... The problem is mitochondrial uncoupling is actually well known and it's a scientific term. And so, you know, to make up a new term kind of goes against, you know, I'm a scientist among other things. Right. So what the heck is mitochondrial uncoupling? Um, so making, most people remember high school biology class and everybody remembers seeing these little squiggly things in the cell called mitochondria and they're they're the energy producing organelles in in all of our cells and they literally take the food we eat and take oxygen and produce atp the energy currency adenosine triphosphate and it believe it or not it wasn't discovered it wasn't until 1978 that how they did this miraculous thing was actually discovered and it won the Nobel Prize. Um, Sir Peter Mitchell uh, discovered it from England. And what he found was that there's this complex series of events that happens in mitochondria where protons and electrons are, are energized. They are brought to a, a fever pitch of wanting to, lack of a better word, mate with each other yeah. uh, in, in the club. And you know, there's loud music, there's drinking, and there's the mitochondria. You know, and you know, the purpose is to couple with somebody. And that's what clubs are useful for. So <laughs> hopefully, so these coupled electrons and, and protons and oxygen, uh, leave the end of the mitochondria through a one-way, actually circular door and uh, the turnstile. And as they leave, they actually generate ATP. And they, there literally is kind of a turnstile that you can see in an electron microscope. Okay, so that's cool. But as anybody who goes clubbing knows, a lot of other bad things happen in clubs. Um, there can be too much drinking. There can be some unsavory characters. There can be lots of coupling with people you probably shouldn't be coupling with. <laughs> and, and it's very damaging uh, to the club. And so there should be a design that there should be emergency exits in the club instead of just one way in and one way out. So that if things are getting crazy, you can get out of there quickly. And it's, you know, it would be a code violation not to have emergency exits. So it turns out mitochondria have emergency exits. And there's actually five emergency exits and they're controlled by what are called uncoupling proteins. And that's where the name came from. Uncoupling basically says normally we should take oxygen and we should take protons and electrons, and we should couple them and produce ATP. But what would happen if a lot of those protons don't get to couple, but instead go out these emergency exits? 
well, you'd still be clubbing, you'd still be burning oxygen, but a lot of the people who would normally couple, uncouple and leave the club. And that kind of diffuses everything for a while and things get back normal until the whole process starts again. So does this actually happen? Well, it turns out it does. And one of the things that amazed me was a paper I discovered that was written by a PhD by the name of Martin Brand in 2000, not long ago. And he wrote this little paper called Uncoupling to Survive. And he said, and it's a good paper, everybody should read it. It's pretty easy reading. He said, look, if, if you were starving to death then, and you were in ketosis, then the mitochondria, which has to produce energy, should protect itself at all costs. Because if the mitochondria doesn't make it, if the mitochondria is damaged, who cares if your muscles are still there? Who cares about anything? You got to have your mitochondria. So if these conditions are met where ketones are present, then mitochondria ought to be signaled to protect themselves at all costs. And that includes wasting this energy. And you go, well, wait a minute. If there's not much food, what a stupid idea. Why in the world would, why wouldn't you become the most efficient fat burner, eke out every last ounce of ATP? And what I realized was, well, yeah, but here's what additionally happens. Yeah, the mitochondria protects itself by wasting fuel. But simultaneously, and this is what's exciting, the mitochondria is stimulated to make more mitochondria to carry the workload. And I didn't put it in the book, and I should have, because I use it for, for talking uh, with you. Let's suppose we have a dog sled, and we have one dog on the dog sled. And the dog's the mitochondria. Yeah, the dog can pull the dog sled and you're not gonna go very fast and you're not gonna go very far until the dog gets tired. What if we took five more dogs and hooked them to the one dog dog sled? So now we got a six dog dog sled. We're gonna go a whole lot faster. We're gonna go a whole lot farther. Each dog is only gonna have to do a sixth of the work instead of all of the work. And that would be great, except for one thing, you now have to feed six dogs instead of yeah. one dog, right? <laughs> so what happens with the cool thing about mitochondria is they have their own DNA. They can divide within the cell separate from when the cell has to divide. So you want, you got one mitochondria, you want a hundred mitochondria, you know, great. Let's send the signals to do that. And some people don't realize because we all, you know, in high school biology, we saw one mitochondria per cell. There can be thousands of mitochondria in every cell. They can be so jam packed in there that you can't even see through it because of the mitochondria, like a heart muscle, for instance. So long story short, what he was proposing is actually correct. And what he went on to show is that some of the longest living people have the healthiest, longest living people have the most uncoupled mitochondria. And so I went, oh my gosh, uh, I want to uncouple my mitochondria. <laughs> but I knew from you know, patient experience uh, that 
eating a high fat ketogenic diet does not last for very long for most people. 60% of people who embark on a high fat ketogenic diet quit after a month because I mean, you can, you can only eat that many pounds of bacon with a cheddar cheese chaser and, and dip it in sour cream. I mean, it, it, it just eventually. I didn't even make it to a month. I'm going to be honest. I did it for like three weeks and I was like, how do you do this? Like, I love food. I can't just, and I tried lots of recipes and it just, it was still, it's so much thought process into it. It's completely unsustainable. It was for me anyway. Well, yeah. and it, it is for most people. Uh, it's just very, very difficult. So, you know, so then I went, well, gosh, yeah, we, we want to make ketones, uh, not because they're going to make us an efficient fat burner, but because they're actually going to make us an inefficient fat burner. We're going to, we're going to waste fuel. And that's actually, you know, how you lose weight, but it's, it's really unsustainable. So you know, are there other ways now that we know that ketones are working by telling mitochondria to uncouple, then are there other things that actually act like signaling molecules that do the exact same thing without the boredom and the misery? And that's what the book is about. Once you unlock the code that ketones are telling mitochondria, then it just opens up this you know, cornucopia of, of wonderful things. So that's what's so exciting. Yeah, so the, the fact of you don't have to remain in ketosis per se, all you have to tell is your mitochondria to do what they would do during ketosis is basically what the key is. And there are eight of them that you speak of uh, the first one is intermittent fasting on the list. And there are, there's several questions that I have on intermittent fasting because it is one of those polarizing sort of topics when I have with uh, some of my clients, even with Nicole, my podcast partner, we have a little bit of different views on this. So first and foremost, quick explanation. What does it mean to be fasting? What is fasting? Well, fasting is when you're not eating. Uh, it's, as, <laughs> it's as simple as that. So, I mean, for instance, when you're asleep, I got news for everybody. You're fasting. Uh, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, the problem is people aren't sleeping enough. So <laughs> That's very true. Uh, and one of, the, one of the side effects of not sleeping enough, as we talk about in the book, is you are really limiting the amount of time that you can actually undergo repair work of mitochondria. And getting back to the, the mito club analogy, if you, know, you, if you open at say 10 o'clock at night and you, you close at 4 a.m., well, you've got you know, all day and a lot of the evening to clean up the mess. But if, if the boss says, oh, gee, you know, uh, I'm going to open at seven at night and close at, you know, eight o'clock in the morning. And now we've only got a few hours to clean up the mess. Mm -hmm. And like we now know, mitochondria have to have tons of downtime to clean up the daily mess. And so not eating is when mitochondria normally get the opportunity to clean up the mess. Absolutely. I agree with that. So what is the difference then? And I, I might get this 
a little bit more myself because of my past and uh, the fact that you know nobody's ever looked at me and thought I was fat or anything like that. So a lot of people hear me say intermittent fasting and they think I'm starving myself. So what is the difference between starvation and intermittent fasting? Well, a lot of it is time period. Uh, so we, I mean, we were clearly uh, designed to survive extended periods without eating. Uh, the longest human being to go was um, 300 and I think 83 days in a, in a supervised water fast, yeah, continuous. So we're, we're clearly designed for that. And one of the reasons that we probably, you know, like a locust took over the world is that, you know, our ancestors could go considerable, you know, days, weeks, months without eating because we are laughingly called the fat ape because we could access our fat stores. Having said that, I am not a fan of extended water fasts for Americans. And the reason for that is uh, we store heavy metals and organopesticides in our fat. And quite frankly, they're pretty safe there. Uh, it's, it, it's designed to keep them locked away. I mean, a big old, you know, 1100 1, pound tuna with toxic levels of mercury uh, looks like a pretty good fighting fish to me, but it's stored in their fat. And then, you know, we idiots go to the sushi bar and eat Tono, the fatty tuna, and we're eating all the mercury that he had stored in, in the fat. So what was actually really probably the most ex important experiment that was done in the Biosphere 2 experiment, which uh, was, they built a big old thing in the Arizona desert. You can go visit it still. Uh, and they wanted to pretend like they were on the mission to Mars and they were gonna try to grow all their own food, make all their own oxygen uh, for a year. And these biospherians uh, were put into this biosphere and it was an unmitigated failure. Um, these people lost about a third of their body weight in six months. And the physician uh, who was uh, Ray Walford from UCLA was a calorie restriction guy. And he said, oh, this, this is great. This is great. I love this. Everybody's you know, starving to death and this is great. <laughs> And, you know, their, their cholesterol numbers drop, their blood pressure drop, you know, this is great. But they eventually abandoned the experiment. They had to start trucking food in. Um, but what they did, and we have to remember that this is written in humans. So they looked at their heavy metals and their organopesticides in their blood. And that went dramatically up. And it took a year for the levels to come back to normal, back to normal. And wow. you go, wow, um, I don't really want to do that, do I? Because we have no good detoxification system for heavy metals. And in fact, we literally recycle them in our gut after we squeeze them out from the liver. So I think, you know, a prolonged water fast, even, even a three-day water fast is in, in us, mm -hmm. not a great idea. And, you know, 
Jason Fung is a friend, uh, but I beg to differ. They're, they're Canadians and they're much healthier than us. So, you know, but, but even Walter Longo, who is a friend from USC, is, is not a fan of fasting for that reason. Uh, but there are other ways to accomplish the same purpose. And what I want to do and what others have, have shown is remarkably effective is to extend the time period in a 24-hour cycle where you are actively producing ketones and get the benefit of ketones uncoupling your mitochondria without you know, a continuous fast. Now, where is, where is the sweet zone? Um, most of us, if we have metabolic flexibility, and metabolic flexibility means can your mitochondria use glucose as a fuel and then switch immediately to burning free fatty acids or ketones as a fuel. And they should be able to do that on a dime, very much like a hybrid car. If you run out of gas, you run on the battery. If you're running on gas, you charge the battery. And we are like a hybrid car in that re respect. But 50% of normal weight individuals in the United States have no metabolic flexibility. 80% of pre-diabetic have no metabolic flexibility uh, of overweight individuals. And in obese individuals, 99% have no metabolic flexibility. So if they stop eating, they can't start burning fat as fuel. Sorry, they just yeah. can't do it. Mm -hmm. And so where's the sweet spot? Well, Dr. Matheson from the NIH, uh, looking at studies, thinks that six hours is probably the perfect sweet spot, beginning eating and finishing eating. And that looks simple. You start at noon, you finish at six. Um, some people think that's a little draconian. Um, how about seven? How about eight? Um, that's pretty good. We know from athlete studies, Italian athletes, that 12 hours is useless, is useless. So, you know, eat, starting eating at eight o'clock and finish eating at eight o'clock. It has no health benefit at all. Now, is it a decent place to start? The average American uh, tends to eat 16 hours a day. We wow. put something in our mouth the second we get up and we don't stop until literally the minute we fall asleep. Uh, this is work uh, out of the Scripps Institute in uh, uh, San Diego. It's scary. I think that there's a lot of truth to that. And that's probably one of the things that shocks people the most too. Like when I say you're going to wait to eat you know, when I have clients, you're going to wait to eat a couple of hours after you wake up. And, you know, if they've never done that, they're like, what? What? <laughs> what? Some people aren't hungry at all when they wake up. They have no yep. appetite for a while. You know, they, um, they're just not hungry until 10, 11, 12 o'clock naturally. But well, yeah, I, I mean, coffee, they do want to get up and drink coffee. Well, and that's great because coffee, coffee uncouples your mitochondria. It's one of the best mitochondrial uncouplers there is. But doesn't it have to be black? It should be black, but uh, for two reasons. Number one, we know that um, how coffee uncouples mitochondria is the polyphenols in coffee and also caffeine. Caffeine is a mitochondrial uncoupler as well. 
if you put milk products in, you will actually bind the polyphenols in the coffee, but you'll still get the caffeine effect. Uh, you can certainly put MCT oil in your coffee. You could put non-dairy like macadamia nut milk, for example, or hazelnut milk and, and achieve the same effect. And you won't break ketosis, by the way, which is nice. Yeah, so that was that's one of the major questions I always get with the Bulletproof coffee or with their morning coffee. Can I add protein to my coffee and not and still remain fasted or be in a fasted state? Uh, in general, the answer is no. The, sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> the so I'm I'm impressed with Walter Longo's work. Um, he showed actually this past year with human volunteers that you could give them a 200 calorie, basically a nut bar. And they would actually, if they ate that nut bar for their breakfast, they would not break ketosis. Uh, and they would continue in ketosis up until they you know, had their lunch. And that's actually exciting news. And I talk about this in the book. So there are you know, there are ways around this misery for those of people who really think that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And, you know, thank you, Kellogg's Corn Flakes and right. Post Toasties, because breakfast is the least important meal of the day. I mean, really, do you think our ancestors crawled out of a cave and said, what's for breakfast? There wasn't any breakfast. There's no storage system. There's no, cor you know, there's no, there's no cupboards. Uh, there's no refrigerator. Yeah, we had to find breakfast, and that. And you look at hunter gatherers, modern ones. They don't eat breakfast until ten or eleven o'clock in the morning when they find something to eat. Breakfast, we think, was invented in the Industrial Revolution in England, and what would happen is that men would be sent off to work very early in the morning and they'd work all day. There weren't lunch breaks. There weren't, you know, health breaks. Well, you gotta have a 15 minute break. <laughs> and they, you know, they stagger home late at night. And so women would make their husbands, you know, a, a break fast before they went off to work because they knew they weren't, they weren't gonna eat until you know, late at night. And it's interesting, that's actually what we now call the, the Ramadan diet. Um, yeah. And I write a lot about it has its own health benefits. But uh, yeah, I mean, breakfast is this crazy, I mean, brand new nutty invention. And so I have just... a question about that because a lot of people will say that if you don't eat breakfast in the morning, your cortisol level will get too high. Oh, I love that. <laughs> so I, I, my last book, I debunked the cortisol myth. Um, I measure AM cortisols in my patients for the last 25 years, every one of them. And it's very unusual, number one, to see elevated cortisol levels. Uh, we got a great fix for it if, if they have it, but there's no correlation between cortisol and weight gain, number one. Number two, if stress was the main driver of cortisol levels, then we, every one of us should have had cortisol levels, you know, off the charts for the last two years during COVID. And what's fascinating is almost no one in the last two years had an elevated cortisol level in my practice, almost no one. So please let's, 
you know, elevated cortisol, all guess, sells books or something, but it's just, it's not real. Uh, it's really not real. Okay. Okay. So to finish off this first uh, key here real quick, because this is something that you went through on the book that I think people aren't really considering when they're doing keto prolonged ketosis. And it is that it can make you insulin resistant. Absolutely. Which is something that we start, you know, we started on ketosis to become insulin flexible. And now you're, what are we doing? Yeah. And, and again, think about it. So think about it from the mitochondria's standpoint. If we accept that if we're in dire straits, mitochondria should do everything they can to protect themselves. And the signal that tells them to do everything they can to protect themselves are ketones. So imagine now you're in continuous ketosis, you, 24 hours a day, day after day. There is only one possible explanation for that, and that is you are starving to death. And now anybody else that uses fuel becomes in your in the body becomes your arch enemy because that part of the body is going to take your your fuel and so it's no wonder that this protective system would be to take the major consumer of fuel muscles and make them insulin resistant and in fact you wrote about this in the first book. You can take trained athletes and put them to bed rest for 48 hours and their muscles will become insulin resistant. Why? Because the only possibility that that would have happened was that this animal, this athlete was injured and couldn't move. And so these protective mechanisms kick in. And so you see, you hear all my friends saying, oh, it's normal to have a fasting glucose of, you know, 120 when you're in ketosis or, or it's normal to have insulin resistance in ketosis. That's fake. You know, that's not real. Well, I'm sorry. Um, that is real. That's why <laughs> this is happening. And why would anybody want to do that? Right. We, we were designed to come and go on a 24 hour basis in and out of ketosis. And even seasonally, we were designed in winter to be probably much more days in ketosis than we were in the summer. Yeah, and I think that at some point, maybe we can work together and write a book on how this works for the female, right? Because we're, it's a general, right? So we have like cycles of the day and the night, and then we have all this thing, you know, I'm I'm 41. There's a lot of stuff coming down the pipeline. I need to start thinking about other things. And as women, we don't even know this. And all, most of the science is written in, you know, for the male perspective or the male body. Sure. So I think, you know, maybe later on, we'll talk about that cycle. <laughs> right. Well, there it, are, it, go ahead. I mean, yeah. One thing that, that I see in my practice is if, if a female wants to get pregnant, then really intermittent fasting, a ketogenic diet is dumb uh, because you guys have fantastic sensors of your fat status, of your feeding status, and you're not dumb enough to kick out an egg unless you, you literally have nine months of fat stores available. And I can't tell you, I've 
take care of a number of elite female athletes and they can't get pregnant and they usually don't even ovulate. And I, you know, and they want to get pregnant. I said, great, we're going to put 10 pounds on you, stuff your face. And, you know, the phone rings, Hey, I'm pregnant. Oh, imagine that. <laughs> well, you know, the, you know, the, the sensor said, Hey, this is our chance. Look, time's right. Let's pop the egg out and let's, let's get it going. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah, I agree. It's yeah. There's, there are people, women who you really don't want to do this when you're trying to get pregnant. And, it, and again, it just, it just comes out. We're a really good design once we kind of figure out what the design was designed to do. Yeah. That's why I always say, you know, know your gut bugs because then you feed them and then you're good. And now knowing, you know, how the mitochondria, which in, in essence is a separate gut bug, like you've yeah. talked about, it just lives with it. Just knowing who you live with is sort of important because they're in your house and they're, they're like letting whoever in or taking anybody out. And so know your people, people. I think, wasn't there a defamation trial all about that recently? Ah, <laughs> great advice. Know who you live with and who's yes. living in your house. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's a little so, off, off track. Perfect. It was completely perfect. Um, so we have a few other keys and I know we don't have uh, an extreme amount of time. So I'm going to run through a few of these so that okay. our listeners great. know what they are. Number two is polyphenols, which if you've uh, read your books, you kind of know about that. Dietary fiber, fermented foods, polyamines was number five. What um, the heck are polyamines? Yes. So that was one that I was already eating all the food, but not necessarily, you know, I think not everybody knew that they were polyamines and, and what they do. Yeah. So, so polyamines are a class of compounds that are, are primarily produced in, in fermentation. Um, there are, these are just by themselves, amazing uncoupling compounds. Uh, I just released a new supplement that has spermidine in it. I can let you guess where that was discovered. Um, and it actually has some incredible, uh, mitochondrial uncoupling, um, processes and it also makes senescent cells die but that's a totally other so subject but so uh, aged cheeses are loaded with these polyamines and there's a beautiful study i cited a few books ago of some italians they looked at italians who ate parmesan cheese uh, versus italians who didn't eat parmesan cheese and they, these were it was a male study but the men who ate Parmesan cheese uh, actually had much better vascular health, had much better flexible vascular arteries than the men who didn't eat you know, Parmesan cheese. And it's because the, the polyamine content is very high in Parmesan cheese. So, so have, have so yourself some aged cheese. Don't take the blue pill, just do the Parmesan cheese. I'm pretty sure that's what he says. Um, <laughs> so the... The last two were hot temperatures and well, cold temperatures, hot temperatures and red light therapy. Now yeah. this past winter, I started walking outside during the winter time with as little clothing as I could without offending anybody around me. And also without being like completely uncomfortable because even though I'm in Southwest Florida, like some mornings were like 38 degrees. Yeah, now, yeah it was nippy, but I didn't necessarily know what I was doing mitochondrial coupling wise 
So I found that out later. This has just been sort of a popular therapy that's been going on. And, you know, cold and hot. Is one better than the other? Does it, is there an end result you're looking for? Well, they actually are activating the exact same thing. And we now realize that both of these therapies uh, uncouple mitochondria. That's how they work. And it's a protective mechanism. Um, when I was doing heart surgery research, we discovered that there were these compounds called heat shock proteins. And that heat shock proteins, we didn't know why, were very protective of heart cells. And we designed bunches of experiments that just before stopping the heart for an hour, we would cut off the blood flow to the, a part of the heart for five minutes and then release it. And we'd show that if we did that before we stopped the heart for an hour, that part of the heart would be much better off than if we didn't do that. And we, we thought this was what's called a hormetic effect that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. But we now realize that this is a signal that, uh-oh, things are about to get really bad. Um, Cole, uh-oh, things are about to get really bad. Uh, 140 degree sauna. Uh-oh, things are about to get really bad. Mitochondria, protect yourself at all costs. How are you going to do that? You're going to uncouple yourselves so that you can ride out this storm. Uh, believe it or not, in Palm Springs in the summer, you know, we can reach 120 degrees. And we're very popular with German tourists. And they just <laughs> come out and uncouple with us, I guess, you know. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I love that. I have a question about, um, you know, you mentioned, okay, so the heat therapy, the light therapy, the cold, by the way, I jump in the Pacific for my cold therapy. Hopefully That's cold therapy. Yeah. 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 Um, and you mentioned fiber and I just wanted to ask this because a, a lot of my clients are inflammatory bowel patients and, um, and a lot of them have done really well omitting most plant foods, at least for time. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of times it's because of the fiber. So do you have a position on, you know, whether that for inflammatory bowel patients should be different or even the carnivore diet? A lot of people use that for a time being. Any thoughts on that? Well, some, some people have accused me of being the father of the carnivore diet uh, <laughs> because, <laughs> uh, you know, there are a lot of plant, there are a lot of plant compounds that do not like us. And, you know, I, made my fame talking about lectins. Uh, I mean, it's very clear. And, you know, 80% of my practice now is autoimmune disease and, and bowel issues. And so, yes, removing these offending plant compounds or neutralizing them by pressure cooking, for instance, uh, is I think one of the keys. It, it's silly for people to say, well, here, you're gonna heal your gut by taking all these compounds and yet they keep putting the things that are, you know, ripping their gut to shred. You know, they're having razor blades for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And they're taking all these healing compounds and wondering why I'm not getting better. So I don't, I don't mind an elimination diet at all in, in these patients. But and we have a lot of people who have come to me uh, who have done well on a FODMAP diet, removing, you know, all fermentable um, starches and sugars. But we have to realize that the gut microbiome is 
absolutely positively dependent on fibrous foods to not only make them grow and divide, but also to produce what are now called postbiotics, which are really one of the keys to long-term health because among other things, postbiotics uncouple your mitochondria. So we do a lot of food sensitivity testing now. We don't do food allergy testing anymore. And we identify the specific compounds that can be mischievous. But yeah, there's nothing wrong um, with doing a, you know, a kind of a full elimination diet and then adding things back. But I'm just dead set against a FODMAP diet as a long-term healthy diet because it you're literally starving the most important part of you to death yeah makes sense i did yeah, so more diet for uh two and a half years and it did cure a pretty nasty case of ulcerative colitis that i'd had for seven years so it did work but um but yeah i think uh at some point you got to feed the bugs again and i don't think you could do that without some kind of plant food that you must be able to tolerate yeah, and you know, I, I think um, as we're beginning to understand what we should take away, what we should put in, uh, I knock on wood, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's are two of the easiest things I have to deal with, quite frankly. Um, most people with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, just following the yes and no lists in the plant paradox, 90% mm -hmm. of them resolve just doing that. So that's exciting. The other thing that most people don't realize, we are profoundly deficient in vitamin D uh, in this country. 80% uh, of Southern Californians are vitamin D deficient when they, because wow. uh, yeah, people are throwing sunscreen on. Yeah, and sitting inside. And unfortunately, yeah. I've got a pretty hard out because apparently somebody else might want to talk with me. Can you oh, imagine? come on, come yeah. on. No, thank you so, so much for your time. I look forward to maybe having you again. Yeah, let, let me come back soon. and yeah, yeah. We'll, fix, we'll fix the link, the funny thing. We'll fix and the link. We'll, we'll come back together about the book we wrote, about the cycles and females and go. what we Let's should be it. eating and all that. <laughs> yeah, we should. I mean, you know, I have a, a wife and two daughters and three female dogs. So <laughs> doggone it. You know, I'm ready to be, uh, I'm, as you know, I am a huge advocate of females getting the attention you guys deserve for your complaints. Um, you know, not a day goes by that, you know, I, I don't have a female new patient going, you mean I'm not crazy? Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, this is real. <laughs> right? I know for sure. So we're going to, we're going to cross you over and then we'll just uh, start writing books for females now. <laughs> All right. Good enough. All right. Thanks for having me. Thanks guys. Take care.